Production. Recorded live. Hello. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is William Fink, and this is Christogania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 3rd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And once again, thank you for listening. I think people are getting a little old, a a little tired of Martin Luther. This is the 21st installment of our presentation of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives, written in 1543. Before I start, I want to talk a minute about Christogenia. I've added some buttons today, Facebook, Twitter, Google, just, well, basically just for the hell of it. I've had some requests, people in the forum have made a request, and, and others in emails that, that, um, that I add more social media interfaces. So I decided to add these buttons and, and allow people to more easily share Christogenia content in, in um, the social networking websites, Google+, Twitter, and Facebook, at least. And, and um, well, well, I hope people do take advantage of them to help spread our message. Since I started doing this six years ago, I've had a love-hate relationship with social networking. Most of those websites simply um, keep, the sheep contained in certain corrals and and also offer them um, free stuff, free um, space to host files or or to post pictures or videos. And, And in exchange, people give up Several things. First, first they give up a part of their rights to free speech because places like Facebook and Google Plus certainly do aim to regulate and, and to define. When they regulate what speech is acceptable and what is not, they are being allowed to define what is acceptable and what is not in a perceptibly public arena. And people, and I've seen this attitude often with with people on Facebook and and Google Plus and other social networking sites, they kind of think they have a right to post what they want and and, and that that their rights are being violated when they're being suppressed because their speech is being regulated. But, you know, Facebook isn't public. It's not owned by the public. It's not like um, Washington Square or Boston Market or or, or Independence Plaza or, or or Central Park or any truly public venue that's commonly owned by, well, all of the so-called citizens, right? Facebook is privately owned. Google Plus is privately owned. And they have the right, the owners, even though they're Jew bastards. We all know that. But because those places are privately owned, the owners have a right to decide what they want posted on those sites and what they don't want. 
So I see people all upset because they get banned from Facebook or because their posts are removed from Facebook. But Facebook's a private company, let's face it. It's, it's a company owned by stockholders. And even though the stock is publicly available and the terminology public company is used, it's private property that belongs to some damn Jew in some bank somewhere or in Amherst or Burbank. So because it's private property, the people that manage it can decide what goes there and what doesn't. It's the, the common American idiot, and most of us are, that come up with this idea that somehow it's a public venue and they can post what they want. And they're tricked and deceived into thinking that. And when you think that, then most people are going to go along with the idea that these Jews that own these basically private corporations or, or, or privately owned corporations and, and set their own rules, that they can define what acceptable speech is and is not because people have the perception that these places are public. So these places are basically conditioning Americans into the idea that these Jew bastards that run these companies can define what speech is acceptable. And, and the only way around that is to have your own website or to join a forum that, 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 that uh, is of people that is managed by people who are like-minded with you. And then, of course, you really could post what you want until you offend them. That's the way it is. The Internet is private. Facebook, YouTube, Google+, they give people the perception that, it, that, that these websites are public and they're not. And, and that leads to the next step. They also give the common people the perception that the Internet is free and it's not. It costs a lot of money every month to maintain servers online so that you could actually have true quote-unquote freedom of speech, right? And even then it's not truly free because somewhere along the line your existence depends on a decision made by some corporation because the entire Internet is a, um, a network of interacting corporations. But as long as we can lease server space freely and, and, and from companies that don't bother with what we post online, we do have a modicum of free speech on the Internet, but that costs money. So I, I um, have this love-hate relationship with social networking because they are good venues to present ideas to perhaps millions of people at times, like a YouTube. Can some YouTubes, most of it's trash, but some YouTubes do reach tens of thousands and millions of people. So the, the, the capability is there. The sad part is most people, most of the social networking sites are just teeming with trash 
and most of the people that, that frequent those sites are accustomed to the trash, and they chew it up. They love it. They, they, and, and so it has its ups and its downs. So I'll try these little buttons for Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus for a while. And, and um, I'm sure sooner or later I'll get mad at one of those companies and shut the damn things off. So that, that's the way it goes when, when you're a Christian trying to cope in a decadent world. But they're there for now. I've had um, Facebook interfaces before in the past, but I don't have an active Facebook account. I've closed all my accounts for various reasons. And, and um, well, the, the, the fact that Facebook had taken over some of our accounts and, and um, used them, some insiders at Facebook, and used them and, and um, nefariously, that's the primary reason why we deactivated our Facebook accounts. So Facebook employees certainly are not honest. And that's another story for another time. This is, I'll repeat myself, the 21st installment of our presentation of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies, written in 1543. We must admit that much of this presentation has been weighed down with arguments over biblical understanding and detailed expositions of certain scriptures, which we feel that we are obligated to present. This is because there are things in scripture that Luther did not quite understand and which cannot be understood without an understanding of what we call Christian identity, or Israel identity, if you will, which is, in essence, the only true Christianity. Everything else is a lie. Luther did not have it, and therefore he thought that he was a Gentile saved by grace and the rejection of the Jews. The Judeo, so-called Christians of today, still believe what Luther believed in that respect. Luther did not have it, because where it comes to the actual history of the children of Israel, Luther followed the converso Jew Bible commentators rather than the words of the prophets and the apostles of Christ. Most so-called Judeo-Christians of today are still doing that same thing. Luther did not have it because while the gospel was open to the was I'm sorry, while the purpose of the gospel was to open the eyes of the blind and to set free them that sat in prison houses, speaking of the children of Israel in captivity. It was simply not yet time for the children of Israel to receive the full revelation of that truth. It is evidently still not that time, because so many of them are still being deceived by the very devils who are thorns and pricks in their eyes, as Scripture had promised. So while we do not appreciate the many misinterpretations of Scripture, which Luther had admittedly 
received from conversal Jews such as Nicholas of Lyra and Paula Burgos. We do appreciate Luther's steadfast conviction in Christ and his faith in the truth of the scriptures, which he did understand. We also appreciate his recognition of Jewish treachery, how that treachery would be subversive to Christian society if it were allowed to continue, and his rather courageous pleadings with the clerics and nobles of Germany to have those devils removed from society. Making these pleadings, Luther had recalled all of the dastardly deeds that the Jews had been perpetrating against Christians, Christians in Europe throughout history. He explained, as the earliest Christian writers do indeed attest, that the Jews were behind all of the pagan Roman persecutions of Christians which had resulted in the execution of so many innocent people over the first three centuries of the Christian era. He explained how the Jews of Europe were doing such things as poisoning wells, kidnapping and murdering Christian children, and posing as physicians so that they may poison Christians even while fleecing them. Of course, the Jews still do all of those things today. Luther also pointed out that through the practice of usury, the Jews were bleeding the wealth from Christian Europe and using the proceeds to steal the Christians' own nations out from under them. And they've done it. He then pointed out how the Jews use a small portion of their ill-gotten gains <clears throat> in order to bribe governments and politicians so that they may continue in their crimes unhindered. Martin Luther understood that the Jews functioned together as co-conspirators in their own crime ring, assisting one another to advance and to subvert Christian society at the expense of their hosts, and that the crime ring organization was found in the synagogues and in the Jewish religious teachings themselves. But most importantly, Luther understood that the Jews could do nothing but blaspheme and curse Christianity, Christians and the Christian God. Therefore, the Jews were contrary not only to Christ, but to the God of the Old Testament as well. Luther knew and explained quite well that by merely accepting the persons of the Jews, Christians, according to their own scripture, made themselves partners in the blasphemy and in all the crimes of the Jews. There is a basic Christian precept, which Luther did understand well, but which is denied by the modern denominations, and which Christians today are not taught, nor do most of them even recognize. 
However, this basic Christian precept is taught in Leviticus chapter 5, in Romans chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, which Luther cites, and in the second epistle of John. That precept is that if one accepts a sinner, or if one fails to point out, to tell of a sin which one has seen committed, then one becomes just as guilty of the sin or of the sins of the sinner than as if one had actually committed those sins himself. Luther knew this, and he explained that by accepting Jews, Christians make themselves accomplices and partners in all of the crimes and the blasphemies of the Jews. Christians still do not understand any of this, mostly because they have ignored even Luther as well as their Bibles in favor of the Jews and their lives. Luther certainly did try to warn them. In the parts of this chapter 12 of his essay, which we already presented, Luther had said of the Jews that there was never a viler people than they, who with their lying, blaspheming, cursing, maligning, their idolatry, their robbery, usury, and all vices, accuse us Christians and all mankind more before God and the world than any others. Luther had also admitted that the Jews are indeed the children of the devil. However, then Luther also took it for granted that the Jews are somehow the children of the Old Testament, the Israelites of the Old Testament, which betrays his mistaken belief that somehow parenthood can be spiritual when the Bible insists that fatherhood comes through seed over and over again. Christ labeled the Jews as devils by their origin and their race, and not merely by their religious persuasion. Once again, Luther, being a disciple of converso Jews, fell to the egalitarian trickery of the devil. The Jews claimed that God was their father and that they were not children of fornication. Those claims were refuted by Christ as well as by the prophets. But Luther simply did not see it through the deception. Luther condemned the Jews because of their own character and before their rejection of Christ, and those things are to his credit. However, those things, while they are not a complete revelation, they should still be enough to make any Christian want to join Luther in that condemnation. Here we shall commence with Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, where we had left off with our last presentation in November. Luther is appealing to the nobles of Germany to reduce the status of the Jews so that they would not be able to subvert 
Christian society any longer. He stops short of advising that they should be killed or even forcibly driven out of the country. He makes it known that neither religious ignorance nor any other excuse could possibly dismiss the Jews from facing his recommended solution to the Jewish problem. Luther challenges the nobles that either his recommendations are followed and the Jews rejected, or Christians would stand convicted of the sins of the Jews before God simply because, as the scripture teaches, Christians accepted the Jews. In this regard, however, Luther also always held out hope that the devils could somehow be converted as if devils could actually be transformed into angels. According to scripture, that transformation only works the other way. Here in the middle of part 12 of his essay, Luther is in the midst of explaining that the Jews have rejected the word of God pertaining to Christ for 1,500 years but that the time is long past due that they should be allowed to have excuses for not understanding those words. To quote Martin Luther, to be sure, they did not know at that time, meaning at the time of the gospel, speaking of the gospel, that it was God's word. But now they have been informed it these 1,500 years. They have witnessed great signs, yet they have raged against this, and because of it lived in such exile for 1,500 years. All right, let them even now hear and believe it, and all will be simple. If they refuse... It is certain that they will never acknowledge it, but are bent on cursing it forever, as their forebears have done for these 1,500 years. So we Christians who do acknowledge it cannot tolerate or take upon everlasting ignorance and blasphemy in our midst. Let them wander back to their own country, be ignorant and blaspheme there as long as they can, and not burden us with their wicked sins. And here we're going to focus a little bit on, on Luther's continuing idea that even though these Jews were devils, they had treacherous character, yet they could possibly still be converted to Christ, which is an idea totally contrary to Scripture. Throughout the series... We have attempted to illustrate and even magnify where Luther did well and to correct Luther's scriptural interpretation where we believe that he fell short. We do this in the hope that Christians who hear this series do not repeat Luther's errors when considering and following those things which he did do well, but instead, as we should do with 
all of our teachers, instead are able to improve upon Luther's good work. One place where Luther fell short was his insistence upon holding out for the possibility that any Jews could actually and sincerely, that's the key word there, sincerely be converted to Christ. So Luther says here, all right, let them even now hear and believe it and all will be simple. Well, it's not that simple. The opportunity for the Jews, or more properly, for Judeans to have accepted Christ was pretty much over by 70 A.D., by which time the gospel had been heard and rejected by all of those still calling themselves Jews. For that reason, Christ had said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, that those calling themselves Judeans were not, but instead they were of the synagogue of Satan. The revelation, by all accounts, was recorded by John around 94, 95 AD, 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. And in that book, if you want to notice the revelation, in that book, the word Jew does not appear anywhere in a positive light. The word Jew in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, the final word of our Bibles, only appears in a negative light. From Matthew chapter 21, and the records of the closing days. Of the ministry of Christ. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered, speaking of Christ. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Let no fruit grow on thee forever. Henceforward forever, from this time forever. The proof that it was over for the Jews to a Christian lies in the cursing of the fig tree by Christ. Christians should not imagine that Christ cursed the fig tree merely because he was angry at being left hungry. 
Rather, Yahshua Christ, being God incarnate, he knew well enough that the tree would not have any fruit on, a fruit on its branches long before he arrived at it. Rather, the tree is representative of his mission in Jerusalem, that there was no fruit there at all and that it was therefore accursed forever, never to have any fruit again. The tree is therefore, allegorically, representative of the Jews themselves. This entire episode of the fig tree was anticipated in the parable of the fig tree found in the Gospel of Luke, which Christ had related at an earlier point in his ministry. From Luke chapter 13, he spoke also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why does it burden the ground? By taking nutrients from it for nothing. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, good. And if not, then after that, Thou shalt cut it down. The ministry of Christ also lasted for three years. And he was crucified after he returned to Jerusalem in the fourth year, three and a half years. Therefore, Jerusalem, as well as a great number of his enemies, were to be cut down as punishment. That coming down happened in 70 A.D., from that time, there was to be no good fruit from the Jews forever. Rather, as Christ also described of the destruction of Jerusalem, which was to come, in Luke chapter 21, and I'll abbreviate this, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. All things written about Jerusalem the broken bottle nation of Jeremiah to be smashed so that it could never be put together again. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. As we see in Jeremiah, these are the bad figs that would be taken into every nation and led captive for a curse and for a reproach and a taunt and a proverb. And that's exactly what they've been. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. Christ explained why the Jews did not believe him in John chapter 10, where he told them, 
that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep in the first place. If Christ himself could not convert the Jews, and if Christ himself said that on that fig tree there would be no more good fruit forever, then it is, it, it is only the pride it is only the pride and the vanity of men who imagine that they could do better than Christ. Oh, Jesus couldn't convert them, but I'll say something. I'll make an argument. I'll prove to them. No, you won't. You're a clown. You're not going to prove anything to the devil. It's the pride and vanity of men who imagine that they could possibly do better than Christ. Christians must perceive the truth that there is no hope for any Jew and there never has been. If a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, the words of Christ, Matthew chapter 13. If a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and the Jews are treacherous bastards and deniers of Christ and persecutors of Christians and usurers and whoremongers and pimps and gamblers for 40 generations, how the hell could any Christian think that the 41st generation might turn out okay? That's ridiculous. Everything in the creation of God and everything in the corruption of that creation begets like kind. The bad tree cannot produce good fruit because it's corrupt. Luther continues, but what will happen even if we do burn down the Jews' synagogues and forbid them publicly to praise God? And Luther would do that because he insists, and it's true, that they only praise God hypocritically. To pray, to teach, to utter God's name, they will still keep doing it in secret. If we know that they are doing this in secret, it is the same as if they were doing it publicly. For our knowledge of their secret doings and our toleration of them implies that they are not secret at all. And thus, our conscience is encumbered with it before God. So let us beware. In my opinion, in Luther's opinion, the problem must be resolved thus. If we wish to wash our hands of the Jews' blasphemy and not share in their guilt, we have to part company with them. They must be driven from our country. Let them think of their fatherland. Then they need no longer wail and lie before God against us that we are holding them captive nor need we any longer complain that they are burdening us with their blasphemy and their usury. This is the most natural and best course of action. 
which will safeguard the interest of both parties. Except that Luther should have realized that the Jews were really only interested in the blood, money, and property of Christians. Good people tend to too easily project their values onto others. That's why when we see a Negro in white man's clothing, we get the crazy idea that he's human when he's really just an ape. From Ephesians, chapter 5, Luther is not accusing the Jews or hating on them without a just cause. Rather, Luther is basically only reiterating the teachings of Paul of Tarsus, added to his own observations, which had proven the truth of Paul's words to him. From Ephesians 5.1, Be ye therefore followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also had loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience and they can't jump the fence to obedience. Be ye not, therefore, partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. In modern English, that would mean which are done by them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The Jews are not the world's foremost subverters of Christian moral, Christian society. 
simply because they sympathize with sinners. The Jews, they had been at the leading edge of the promotion of miscegenation because they are history's oldest race mixers. They had been on the leading edge of the so-called fights for civil rights for minority ethnic groups for that same reason, because they are history's oldest race mixers. They have battled Christendom. They have battled Christian populations and Christian governments for the tolerance of homosexuals because the Jews are indeed the children of Canaan and therefore the Jews are the sons and daughters of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Jews are indeed the world's foremost sodomites. The Jews are the world's foremost panderers of prostitution and pornography because they seek to turn the whole of Adam kind into perverts and sodomites just like themselves. The Jews fight for gay marriage, transgender rights, and every other perversion because the Jews themselves are the authors of every perversion. Then they fight against the private ownership of weapons because the devils do not want men to be able to defend their wives and their children against the onslaught of Jewish treachery and perversion. These people, in all these years, Martin Luther was afraid of what the Jews did in secret. Paul of Tarsus told us what the bastards did in secret, and they've done it for all this time. They weren't moral during the Middle Ages. They only did it in private, in secret, during the Middle Ages. The Jews aren't sudden perverts. They've been perverts ever since the wife of Lot was turned to ashes. And before that, obviously. They weren't moral rabbis for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden in the 1960s started, well, I'm not going to mention their perversions. They've only come out of the closet. The Jews came straight out of the closet from hell. And now they trumpet all of these perversions that in Paul's day he said they did privately. Now they trumpet all of these things publicly. And Christians are partners in their crimes simply because... Christians have tolerated their presence. And that's what Luther was warning about 400 years ago. In 1540, Martin Luther was warning about the 1920s in Germany and the 1950s and 60s in America. In 1543, and we see the Jews act the same way 400 years later. 2,000 years ago, Paul of Tarsus was warning the Ephesians about them. The things they do in secret, we don't even want to know. 
400 years before the Jews pushed for gay marriage, Martin Luther was afraid that they would subvert Christian society with the things they do in secret. As Paul warned 2,000 years ago, almost, even before transgender surgery ever entered the minds of white Christian Europeans. Back to Luther. But since they loathe to quit the country, they refuse to leave, right? They will boldly deny everything and will also offer the government money enough for permission to remain here. Luther had been complaining about the way that Jews were bribing governments. Woe to those who accept such money, and accursed be that money, which they have stolen from us so damnably through usury. And now we are much worse off today than medieval Germany, because today we simply let the Jews print all the money they want through those phony so-called reserve banks as they put the names of our nations on the debt notes. And Luther says that they deny just as brazenly as they lie. And wherever they can secretly curse, poison, or harm us Christians, they do so without any qualms of conscience. <clears throat> and just as Luther warned, today, Jewish-run corporations and Jewish-run government organizations do the same things in the name of science. So we have Frankenfood, we have chemtrails, we have vaccines, and even worse, they're all mandated by the government. All at the behest of Jewish organizations, such as the American Medical Association, the American Dental Association. Luther says, if they are caught in the act or charged with something, they are bold enough to deny it impudently, even to the point of death, since they do not regard us worthy of being told the truth. And of course, Christ told them why, told us why they were liars. Because they were children of the devil, and they couldn't possibly tell the truth. Today, the Jews counter any such accusation, accusations with invocations of the Holocaust and an endless storm of media propaganda designed to make devils look like saints. And Luther goes on to say, in fact, these holy children of God, and of course, with that label, Luther is being sarcastic, as he has been throughout this essay, Consider any harm they can wish or inflict on us as a great service to God. Indeed, if they had the power to do to us what we are able to do to them, not one of us would live for an hour. But since they lack the power to do this publicly, they remain daily our murderers and bloodthirsty foes in their hearts. 
Their prayers and curses furnish evidence of that, as do the many stories which relate to their torturing of children and all sorts of crimes for which they have often been burned at the stake or banished. When Christ uttered the words in John chapter 16, when Christ uttered these words, Christians were in the minority among Jews and pagans. And pagans in Rome were actually pretty good tools for the wiles of the Jews. When Christ uttered these words, Christians were in a minority. And he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yeah, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. When Luther wrote, Christians were no longer a minority in Europe. But the Jews had certainly not changed their attitudes. They were still conspiring to kill Christians, as Luther says, thinking that they were doing God a service. Even today, when Jews kill Christians, they extol their actions as if they were for the good of what they call humanity. Of course, they can't possibly count Christians among humanity. They imagine themselves as they instigate war after war. They imagine themselves to be doing God a service. And in truth, they do the work of their father because they themselves are devils. The biggest failure of Christians everywhere is to look at a Jew and think he's looking at a person. He's really looking at a devil. Therefore, back to Luther, I firmly believe that they say and practice far worse things secretly than the histories and others record about them. Meanwhile, relying on their denials and on their money. But even if they could deny all else, they cannot deny that they curse us Christians openly, not because of our evil life, but because we regard Jesus as the Messiah and because they view themselves our captives, although they know very well that the latter is a lie and that they are really the ones who hold us captive in our own country by means of their usury and that everyone would gladly be rid of them. And that is true of the common people of medieval Europe throughout history. But the nobles, for the most part, to a great degree at least, were corrupt and accepted the money of the Jews in bribery time after time after time. The nobles that stood up against the Jews were all too often destroyed in wars by their corrupt neighbors who were taking the money of the Jews.
Because they curse us. They also curse our Lord. And if they curse our Lord, they also curse God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Thus their lying cannot avail them. Their cursing alone convicts them. So that we are indeed compelled to believe all the evil things written about them, their character. He elucidates the absolute truth of the words of Scripture. Undoubtedly, they do more and viler things than those which we know and discover. Well, of course, they've been sodomites forever. They've been perverts and race mixers forever. For Christ does not lie or deceive us when he adjudges them to be serpents and children of the devil. That is his and all his followers, murderers and enemies whenever they find it possible. Of course, Luther was not aware that once the Jews had a chance to do so, they would indeed be the insatiable promoters of every sexual perversion by which they could corrupt Christian society. Luther had excellent insight into the character of the Jews. The tree is known by its fruit. If the Jews promote sodomy, then they prove that they are the children of Sodom. It's that simple. Christians should look at it with that simple philosophy. The tree is known by its fruit, the words of Christ. The Jews of Luther's time must have been sodomites as well, because that is their very nature. But in Luther's Germany, they dare not make it public. However, Luther still suspected them when he said that they do more and viraler things than those which we know and discover, evidently following the warnings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. However, Luther took it for granted that Christ was speaking allegorically when he called them serpents and children of the devil. And that was a major mistake. Many scriptures, such as Luke chapter 11, 1 John chapter 4, Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 4, all support the fact that Christ was making a plain and literal statement concerning the origins of his enemies. The answers are found in biblical history. Luther evidently did not go looking for them. He just took it for granted. Even though these Jews, he understands, are terrible liars, he took it for granted they were telling the truth, that they were Israelites. He says, if I add power over the Jews, as our princes and cities have, I would deal severely with their lying mouth. They have one lie with which they work great harm among their children and their common folk, and with which they slander our faith so shamefully. Namely, they accuse us and slander, slander us among their people, declaring that we Christians worship more than one God. 
Here they vaunt and pride themselves without measure. They beguile their people with the claim that they are the only people in contrast to all the Gentiles who worship no more than one God. Oh, how cocksure they are about this. And there is no doubt that at least most of the disputes over the nature of Christ are sown by the Jews. And the balance come from an ignorance of Scripture on the part of Christians. But the biggest lie of all, the biggest lie of the Jews is accepted by Luther. And that one big lie enables them to get away with promoting all of their other lies. And that one big lie, which Luther didn't understand, is the Jewish claim that they are the children of Israel, when in reality they are Canaanite and Edomite infiltrators and devils incarnate. If the Jews were not allowed to get away with the obvious lie that they are the Israelites of the Bible, then none of their other lies would ever be heard. Luther counts their denial of the Godship of Christ as their biggest lie, and the fact that the Jews claim that Christians worship more than one God, he counts that as their biggest lie, because he doesn't see their biggest lie. This is actually their second biggest lie. They would never get away with it if Christians understood that they were imposters and devils. Luther goes on to say, even though they are aware that they are doing us an injustice and are lying on this point as malicious and wicked scoundrels, even though they have heard for 1,500 years and still hear that all of us Christians disavow this. They still stuff their ears shut like serpents and deliberately refuse to hear us. I've never seen a serpent stuff its ears shut, but that's all right. But rather insist that their venomous lies about us must be accepted by their people as the truth. This they do even though they read in our writings that we agree with Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, or the Lord our God, is one God. And that we confess publicly and privately with our hearts, tongues, and writings, our life and our death, that there is but one God, of whom Moses writes here, and whom the Jews themselves call upon. I say, even if they know this and have heard and read it about us for almost 1,500 years, it is of no avail. Their lies must still stand, and we Christians have to tolerate their slander that we worship many gods. And Luther correctly understood that Christ was indeed God incarnate. But below, he'll profess the belief that the Godhead is three persons and therefore a trinity. And we will address that in due time. 
Consequently, he says, if I had power over them, I would assemble their scholars and their leaders and order them, on pain of losing their tongues down to the root, to convince us Christians within eight days of the truth of their assertions and to prove this blasphemous lie against us to the effect that we worship more than the one true God. If they succeeded, we would all on the selfsame day become Jews and be circumcised. If they failed, they should stand ready to receive the punishment they deserve for such shameful, malicious, pernicious, and venomous lies. For thanks be to God, we are after all not such ducks, clods, or stones as these most intelligent rabbis. These senseless fools think us that we do not know that one God and many gods cannot truly be believed in simultaneously. And in my opinion, it is the vanity and pride of a man that leads him to believe that he can out-debate the devil. The devil cannot lose a debate because the, uh, a devil has no regard for truth or lies. A devil has no regard for right or wrong. So you really can't debate a devil because he doesn't care if he's telling the truth or if he's telling a lie. It doesn't matter to him. So you can't debate a devil because you would never convince a devil of the value of the truth over the lies. That's my opinion. It's futile debating a devil. Luther goes on to say that neither Jew nor devil, I don't know why he sees them as two different groups. I can't figure that one out. I'm being sarcastic. Neither Jew nor devil will in any way be able to prove that our belief that the one eternal Godhead is composed of three persons implies that we believe in more than one God. If the Jews maintain that they cannot understand how three persons can be one God, why, then, must their blasphemous, accursed, lying mouth deny, condemn, and curse what it does not understand? Such a mouth should be punished for two reasons. In the first place, because it confesses that it does not understand this. In the second place, because it nevertheless blasphemes something which it does not understand. And even Christ, in a different context, and the apostles also warn us that the Jews will blaspheme, speak evil against things they do not understand. Why do they not first ask? Indeed, why have they heard it for 1,500 years and yet refused to learn or understand it? Therefore, such lack of understanding cannot help or excuse them, nor us Christians, if we tolerate this any longer from them. As already said, we must force them to prove their lies about us or suffer the consequences. For he who slanders and maligns us as being idolatrous in this respect, slanders and maligns Christ, that is, God himself, as an idol. 
Luther equates Christ to God. For it is from him that we learned and received this as his eternal word and truth, confirmed mightily by signs and confessed and taught now for nearly 1,500 years. The argument over the Trinity, from Luther's perspective, so long as he considers Christ to be God, is mere semantics. However, there is in Scripture one invisible, all-powerful God who may manifest himself to man in any way that he desires. Of course, in the New Testament, those manifestations are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that Yahweh God is limited to those manifestations. Yahweh God is the Holy Spirit, and Christ himself asserts that he is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. No doubt. But in the Old Testament, Yahweh God was the burning in the bush. He was the pillar of fire. He was the pillar of smoke. He was the rock in the desert. And whatever other manifestations of God are described in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 1, that's another one, so the Godhead is not limited to three manifestations that can be called persons. The Godhead is one person with many manifestations. Conceivably, it shouldn't be limited at all by man. So to perceive of a trinity, we are trying to put limits on the ability of our God. Paul said of Christ in Colossians chapter 2 that for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Luther was right to say Christ is God. But Christ is only the manifestation of God as a man. And God is much greater than the man himself. So in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. As much of God as the body of the man can hold. Back to Luther. No person has yet been born or ever will be born who can grasp or comprehend how foliage can sprout from a wood or a tree, or how grass can grow forth from stone or earth, or how any creature can be begotten. And Luther didn't foresee it, but today science can now break down the physical components. And science can even describe the chemical compositions. But Luther was right, because science cannot yet explain or reproduce life on its own. Science cannot do that. Yet these filthy, blind, hardened liars presume to fathom and to know what is happening outside and beyond the creature in God's hidden, incomprehensible, inscrutable, and eternal essence. 
But today, the devils use the label of science to claim that they have this ability, but they do not have that ability, not at all. And Luther says, though we ourselves can grasp only with difficulty and with weak faith what has been revealed to us about this in veiled words, they give vent to such terrible blasphemy over it as to call our faith idolatrous, which is to reproach and defame God himself as an idol. We are convinced of our faith and doctrine, and they too ought to understand it, having heard for 1,500 years that it is by God and from God, speaking of the creation, through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if these vulgar people had expressed themselves more mildly and said the Christians worship one God and not many gods, and we are lying, and doing the Christians an injustice when we allege that they are worshiping more than one God. Though they do not, though they do believe that there are three persons in the Godhead, we cannot understand this, but are willing to let the Christians follow their convictions, etc. That would have been sensible, but now they proceed, impelled by the devil, to fall into this like filthy sows, fall into the trough, defaming and reviling what they refuse to acknowledge and to understand. Without further ado, they declare, we Jews do not understand this and do not want to understand it. Therefore, it follows that it is wrong and idolatrous. These are the people to whom God has never been God but a liar in the person of all the prophets and apostles, no matter how much. God had preached these to them. And in truth, the prophets didn't preach to the Canaanites and Edomites, but rather they warned Israel about them. So Luther once again fails for thinking that the Jews are Israel. The result is that they cannot be God's people. And that's true, but Luther didn't know why. He couldn't put it all together. The, the result is that they cannot be God's people no matter how much they teach, clamor, and pray. They do not hear God. So he, in turn, does not hear them. As Psalm 18.26 says, With the crooked... Thou dost show thyself perverse. Well, well, the psalmist talking about the Jews, but not in the sense that Luther thinks. The wrath of God has overtaken them. I am loath to think of this, and it has not been a pleasant task for me to write this book, being obliged to resort now to anger, now to satire, in order to avert my eyes from the terrible picture which they present. It has pained me to mention their horrible blasphemy concerning our Lord and his dear mother, which we as Christians are grieved to hear. I can well understand what St. Paul means in Romans 10, and, and actually Luther must be referring to Romans chapter 9, but I don't know how his um, book of Romans was divided into chapters. He must be referring to Romans 9, verse 2. I can well understand what St. Paul means in Romans 10 when he says that he is saddened as he considers them. 
I think that every Christian experiences this when he reflects seriously, not on the temporal misfortunes and exile which the Jews bemoan, but on the fact that they are condemned to blaspheme, curse, and vilify God himself and all that is God's for their eternal damnation. And that they refuse to hear and acknowledge this, but regard all of their doings as zeal for God. O God, Heavenly Father, relent and let your wrath over them be sufficient and come to to an end for the sake of your dear Son. Amen. Of course, God's wrath for the Jews will come to an end as soon as they get that holocaust that we owe them. Lake of fire. In um, Romans chapter 9, Paul said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And Luther took it for granted that Paul was talking about Jews, and he wasn't at all talking about the people who we know today as Jews. Luther entirely missed and the churches today still miss, Paul's point in Romans chapter 9, that Paul said they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, at Paul's time, all those people in Israel claiming to be Israel were not all Israel. And that's the King James Version translation. But a child could figure that one out. In that very same place, Paul says that he cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh, and that not everybody in Israel is actually an Israelite. So that only leaves room for the possibility that there are people in Israel who are not Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, yet they claim to be Israelites. And Paul goes on to compare Jacob and Esau and to say that these children of Jacob are vessels of mercy and these children of Esau are vessels of destruction. The only conclusion, reading the histories of Josephus, Ezekiel chapter 34, the fact that Many that the Strabo's geography, book 16, the fact that many of these people in Judea are Edomites makes it easy to understand what Paul is saying here, that these Edomites are the vessels of destruction, but the children of Jacob are the vessels of mercy, and they are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. And that line should have been a further clue to Luther, yet he glosses over it because he reads the Bible with the assumption, the the, the preclusion that the Jews are Israel. And, And if you read the Bible, assuming ahead of time that the Jews are Israel, then your mind is going to transfer everything that belongs to Israel to the Jews, and you're not going to understand these passages. 
if you have no such presumption and read the Bible objectively with a little background in history, in Josephus, in the history of that period, and, and, and of Palestine, then it's easy to see what Paul was saying. And Luther didn't see it because he read Scripture, even though he read the Greek, he read it with a presumption. And he believed the presumption and took it for granted that it was true. So he doesn't really know what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 9. The vessels of mercy were either committed to the enemy to be destroyed, as Jeremiah says in the bad figs, or they were converted to Christ. And Paul's concern was only for them. It wasn't for the Edomites. And it's primarily the Edomites from whom the Jews after 70 AD had descended. And since 70 AD, it doesn't really matter because good figs, bad figs, if they didn't turn to Christianity, they all became mixed up with the Edomite Jews. There are no good fruit forever. Luther goes on to say, I wish and I ask that our rulers who have Jewish subjects exercise a sharp mercy towards these wretched people as suggested above. Remember, remember that Luther suggested that all their religious books be taken from them, that their synagogues be burned, that their rabbis be forbidden to teach, and that their houses and their schools all be burned to the ground and that they be forced to live out in the open fields. That's what Luther suggested above. And those suggestions started in part 10 of Luther's paper on the Jews and their lies. And he repeated them several times in part 10 and part 11. He repeats some of it here. I wish and I ask that our rulers who have Jewish subjects exercise a sharp mercy towards these wretched people as suggested above to see whether this might not help, though it is doubtful. They must act like a good physician who, when gangrene has set, proceeds without mercy to cut, saw, and burn flesh, veins, bone, and marrow. Such a procedure must be followed in this instance. Burn down their synagogues. Forbid all that I had enumerated earlier. Force them to work and deal harshly with them, as Moses did in the wilderness, slaying 3,000 lest the whole people perish. And again, Luther's confused over that Old Testament. They surely do not know what they are doing. Moreover, as people possessed, they wish they do not wish to know it, hear it, or learn it. However, it would be wrong to be merciful and confirm them in their conduct. If this does not help, 
we must drive them out like mad dogs so that we do not become partakers of their abominable blasphemy and all their other vices and thus merit God's wrath and be damned with them. I have done my duty. Now let everyone see to his. I am exonerated. And remember, Luther was a fairly high-level cleric in Germany at this time and very well respected. And he is writing this letter to the nobles and clerics of Germany. This essay is aimed at that audience. When the Jews who deny Christ claim to be the children of Israel, they were denied the validity of that claim by Christ. He denied it. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Yet Paul of Tarsus explicitly identified the Corinthians and the Romans as Israelites. He identified the Romans as the children of Abraham. He identified the Corinthians as having been with Moses in the Exodus. The simplistic view of biblical history as having a clear-cut division between Jews and Gentiles is therefore unscriptural and foolish. And it's easy to prove. Romans 4, 1 Corinthians 10. Two witnesses. Show a Christian two witnesses, and he should wonder about Christian identity. That should make any true Christian want to investigate these things. Finally, I wish to say this for myself. If God would give me no other Messiah than such as the Jews wish and hope for, I would much, much rather be a sow than a human being. I will cite you a good reason for this. The Jews ask no more of their Messiah than to be a Kakba, Simon Bar Kakba, an worldly king who will slay us Christians and share out the world among the Jews and make them lords, who finally will die like other kings and his children after him. For thus declares a rabbi, You must not suppose, he's quoting the rabbi, you must not suppose that it will be different at the time of the Messiah than it has been since the creation of the world, etc. That is, there will be days and nights, years and months, summer and winter, seed time and harvest, begetting and dying, eating and drinking, sleeping, growing, digesting, eliminating, all will take its course as it does now. Only the Jews will be masters and will possess all the world's gold, goods, joys, and delights, while we Christians will be their servants. This coincides entirely with the thoughts and teachings of Muhammad. He kills us Christians, as the Jews would like to do, occupies the land and takes over our property, our joys, and our pleasures. 
if he were a Jew and not an Ishmaelite, that's a fatal error, the Jews would have accepted him as the Messiah long ago, or they would have made him the Bar Kokhba. <clears throat> but Muhammad was not an Ishmaelite either. And we see with this statement from Luther, how old the misconception is that the Arabs are Ishmael. Yes, some of the Arabs may be part Ishmael. The Nabataeans come to mind. They have the most legitimate claim, but even they are mixed. That's why they are Arabs. Some of the Jews are also part Ishmael. In the Old Testament, it is evident that Esau intermarried with Ishmaelites and that the later Ishmaelites dwelt among and intermingled with the Edomites. In truth, they are all mixed Arab bastards who are not only mixed up with one another, but with the Canaanites, the Rephaim, the Kenites, and the Negro beasts that made their skin so dark and their hair so wiry. That's what an Arab is. And who knows what else is thrown into the mix. They are not Ishmaelites. Anybody that repeats the error that the Arabs are Ishmaelites, well, we see it came from Luther. I mean, it may not have originated with Luther, but it's an old mistake, evidently. But it is a mistake. The word Arab comes from a Hebrew verb meaning to grow dark and was used of seed and of people to mean mingled or mixed. In the Exodus, we see the mingled multitude, the mixed multitude following the children of Israel out of Egypt. And if you look at Strong's Concordance for that word mixed, where it says mixed multitude, the word is Arab or Arab. Likewise, when you look at Nehemiah chapter 13, 3, where Israel was separated from all the mixed multitude, the word for mixed in that passage, it's Arab or Arab. Luther continues, even if I had all of that, or if I could become the ruler of Turkey or the Messiah for whom the, for whom the Jews hope, I would still prefer being a sow. For what would all of this benefit me if I could not be secure in its possession for a single hour? Death, that horrible burden and plague of all mankind would still threaten me. I would not be safe from him, meaning from death. I would have to fear him every moment. I would still have to quake and tremble before hell and the wrath of God. And I would know no end of all this, but would have to expect it forever. The tyrant Dionysius illustrated this well when he placed a person who praised his good fortune at the head of a richly laden table. Over his head, he suspended an unsheathed sword, 
attached to a silk thread. And below him he put a red-hot fire, saying, Eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, the tyrant's position is that he's under constant threat and could die any moment. That was the lesson in the act of Dionysius. Luther is actually referring to Dionysius II of Syracuse, who lived and ruled over Syracuse and all of Sicily for a time in the 4th century B.C. So Luther did read some history. He just didn't read the right history. He goes on to say, that is the sort of joy such a Messiah would dispense. In other words, you could eat, drink, and be merry, but you still may die at any moment. That was the Messiah that the Jews awaited. And I know that anyone who has ever tasted of death's terror or burden would rather be a sow than bear this forever and ever. For a sow lies down on her feather bed, or on a street, or on a dung heap. She rests securely, snores gently, sleeps sweetly, neither fears king nor lord, neither death nor hell, neither the devil nor God's wrath and lives entirely without care so long as she has her brand. And if the emperor of Turkey were to draw near with all his might and his wrath, she in her pride would not move a bristle for his sake. If someone would arouse her, she, I suppose, would grunt and say, if she could talk, you fool, why are you raving? You are not one-tenth as well off as I am. Not for an hour do you live as securely, as peacefully, as tranquilly as I do constantly, nor would you even if you were ten times as great or rich. In brief, no thought of death occurs to her, for her life is secure and serene. And if the butcher performs his job with her, she probably imagines that a stone or piece of wood is pinching her. She never thinks of death, and in a moment she is dead. Neither before, during, or in death did she feel death. She feels nothing but life, nothing but everlasting life. No king, not even the Jew's Messiah, will be able to emulate her, nor will any person, however great, rich, holy, or mighty, he might be. She never ate of the apple which taught us wretched men in paradise the difference between good and evil. What good would the Jew's Messiah do me if he were unable to help a poor man like me in the face of this great and horrible lack and grief and make my life one-tenth as pleasant as that of a sow? I would say, dear Lord God, keep your Messiah, or give him to whoever will have him. Instead, make me a sow, for it is better to be a live sow than to be a man who is eternally dying. Yeah, as Christ says... It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. However, if I had a Messiah who could remedy this grief so that I would no longer have to fear death, but would always be eternally sure of life and be able to play a trick on the devil in death and no longer have to tremble before the wrath of God, then my heart would leap for joy and be intoxicated with sheer delight. Then would a fire of love for God be enkindled, and my praise and thanks 
would never cease. Even if he would not, in addition, give me gold, silver, and other riches, all the world would nonetheless be, gen- be a genuine paradise for me, though I lived in a dungeon. The conquest of hell and death, the resurrection from the grave, they're subjects of the prophets in the Old Testament, and neither do the Jews believe them. The Jewish Messiah is as worldly and as materialistic as the Jews are because the Jews have formed God in their image. The Jews were certainly not formed in God's image. That is the kind of Messiah we Christians have, and we thank God, the Father of all mercy, with the full, overflowing joy of our hearts, gladly and readily forgetting all the sorrow and harm which the devil wrought for us in paradise. For our loss has been richly compensated for, and all has been restored to us through this Messiah. Filled with joy, the apostles sang and rejoiced in dungeons and amid all misfortunes, as did even young girls such as Agatha, Lucia, etc. The wretched Jews, on the other hand, who rejected this Messiah have languished and perished since that time in anguish of heart, in trouble, trembling, wrath, impatience, malice, blasphemy, and cursing, as we read in Isaiah 65, 14. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and shall wail for anguish of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will slay you, but his servants he will call by a different name. And in the same chapter we read, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. That is, who are not my people. And that's Luther's parenthetical remark. But of course, the people in Hosea who were not my people were the put away children of Israel. Luther goes on to finish the quote and say, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. And Luther, I must say, is missing. He's using Isaiah against these people called the Jews. And In a way, it is about the people called the Jews, but they're not his people. Luther misses half of the context of that chapter of Isaiah, as verse 9 says, before verse 14, and that will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants, plural, shall dwell there. And that is not a reference to the Jews. So Luther's trying, but he just can't get it right because the Jews are not Jacob and Judah. We indeed have such a Messiah who says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
The Jews and the Turks care nothing for such a Messiah. And why should they? They must have a Messiah from the fool's paradise who will satisfy their stinking belly, who will die together with them like a cow or a dog. And since Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he could never be a Messiah to either the Jews or the Turks. To conclude Luther's final paragraph of the chapter, nor do they need him in the face of death, for they themselves, and he's being sarcastic, for they themselves are holy enough with their penitence and piety to step before God and attain this and everything. Only the Christians are such fools and timid cowards who stand in awe of God, who regard their sin and his wrath so highly that they do not venture to appear before the eyes of his divine majesty without a mediator or messiah to represent them and to sacrifice himself for them. The Jews, however, are holy and valiant heroes and knights who dare approach to God themselves without mediator or Messiah and ask for and receive all they desire. Obviously, the angels and God himself must rejoice whenever a Jew condescends to pray. Then the angels must take this prayer and place it as a crown on God's divine head. We have witnessed this for 1,500 years. So highly does God esteem the noble blood and circumcised saints because they call his son Hebel Voret. And Hebelvoric, as we saw, I'm sorry about the chair, Hebelvoric, as we saw some chapters ago, and as Luther interpreted it, is lying and deception. And it is a curse the Jews used to blaspheme Christ himself. Here Luther is being sarcastic. Since there are Jews who indeed claim that they, <coughs> that they shall approach God, and be justified apart from Christ. However, Luther is certainly aware that Christ had also said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. This concludes chapter 12 of Luther's essay on the Jews and their lives. <laughs> there is but one short chapter of Martin Luther's essay remaining, and Yahweh willing, we shall present it here in the near future. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.